Welcome to the Calibre podcast. In this episode, myself, Faye Soteri, and Bill Prince, watch journalist and acting editor-in-chief of Wallpaper magazine, round up the horological world across 2022. We discuss the landscape of the watch world, exciting new launches and brand developments. Look at Watches and Wonders this year, the GPHG Awards and up and coming developments at Watches of Switzerland Group for next year. How are you, Bill? I'm very well, thank you, Faye. Thanks for joining us today. Um, it doesn't feel like 10 months since we did our initial overview of Watches and Wonders at the beginning of the year, let alone when we met midway through. We've done various podcasts. Today, um, it's the review of 2022. It's an interesting year, isn't it? Well, we're here to talk about time, aren't we, Faye? And this year has been a really extraordinary one from that point of view. Um, I don't like to remember, but I think we should recall that uh, at, at the beginning of the year, we were coming out of what turned out to be lockdown light here in the UK. Um, and that seemed to shorten the year. A lot of events, a lot of planning that had gone into the first couple of months obviously evaporated before Christmas when the announcement came that we wouldn't be out and about quite as much as we hoped we would be. So this year has been foreshortened in some ways, um, which has packed a lot more in, a lot more activity. Uh, at the same time, I think by compressing it, it has, ma it has made it feel incredibly intense from a watch launch perspective. And as we'll come on to talk about, I think we were all just getting ready and hoping against hope nothing would stop Watches and Wonders, the uh, annual uh, gravity-defying moment when all of the watch brands that matter to us assembled in Geneva. Uh, came together for the first time in real life, as we all learned to say during the lockdown, IRL, um, in April. So that's what we were thinking at the beginning of the year, wasn't it? And then lo and behold, and thank the heavens, we were there. So that seems to me a, a quite a short year in which to account for everything that's happened since. Yeah, I can't believe how quickly it's, it's gone by. And um, so here we are just before Christmas and we're going to review the uh, watch world for 2022 you've briefly touched on that but we'll go into a little bit more about watches and wonders and as you said um the first in-person fair since the pandemic and um, we can touch on key moments and milestones within the world of horology um, how the industry is coping after the pandemic and also how the industry is coping with the cost of living crisis. So I think that's really pertinent for all of us at the moment. GPHG Awards, which has just happened a few weeks ago. Iconic products, our exclusives, key launches and sort of a, just a nod also to what the Watchers of Switzerland Group are doing here in the UK, in Europe and in the US. So. Um, as you said, it's a year condensed into 10 months, so go. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a talk that's going to be condensed into less than an hour, so we better not waste much time. Um, it was so interesting what you were saying about gathering again for Watches and Wonders, because without going into all the history around it, and for those that aren't interested in this side of the business, I won't go on too much, but as we... The COVID crisis arrived just as I think the whole approach to watch fairs and the presentation of watches was going through a revolution as well. And a lot of the brands had felt that uh, having two standalone events, one in Basel at the time and one in Geneva, was no longer fit for purpose given the amount of product they wished to show and given the way we all now engage with new launches, which I think we know now is across all sorts of platforms, including your own, Faye. So that was happening. At the same time as COVID struck, there, to my certain knowledge, having spoken anecdotally to so many friends, 
interest in watches exploded in those 20 months when we were uh, thinking about our futures and thinking about our lives. And those two things arrived at the end of hopefully what will now be regarded as the pandemic, not the A pandemic that we were being warned against at the beginning, um, with a hugely interested audience and an industry that's completely changed how it wanted to present itself. And we found that, didn't we? When we arrived at Watches and Wonders, we were uh, staring at two centres of excellence. The, what had been the existing SIHH, as it was known, in Geneva, alongside of which had been created almost a mini version of the old Basel Fair, because so many of the Basel brands, um, largely the independents and the Geneva-based brands, came to Geneva in April to join up and this new business was referred to and is now called Watches and Wonders. And for us, that was a huge game changer. Um, before we'd had to travel twice to Switzerland and now we had one stop shop, if you like that terminology, here in Geneva for the start of the fair. And I guess, well, we'll come on to two long tail conversations around what was going on before and during the uh, COVID crisis, but it was apparent that the brands wanted to come back and make a splash. I mean, I think we both agreed that there was some extraordinary watchmaking that we saw. At the same time, you, more than anyone, was dealing with the situation which none of the watch industry could have seen and could, did see the COVID crisis coming, which meant their production numbers had been pretty steady as what they would have expected for the next two or three years. And that build-up of anticipation and interest in watches created a shortfall in the in the production therefore the delivery of watches and I think if there's one thing that entertained me this year was watching how the brands annual good sales and those who are looking for their favorite watch uh, managed what was an effect of a shortfall in supply and that created its own storylines and its own problems and its own issues but fundamentally it made everyone talk everyone was talking about watches in 2022. Yes you're right Bill there were um there were additional challenges that we hadn't anticipated. I mean, we didn't know what we were heading into, what the new norm was gonna look like, but we experienced production challenges with a lot of brands. Sometimes that's what fuels the demand. However, off the back of the pandemic, there were definite um, bigger delays, um, intake challenges, um, production issues it, from, from, from a variety of elements. But as the year's gone on, we have seen, particularly with some of the commercial brands, we have seen um, it rectify itself slightly. It's not, but, but, but every retailer was chasing stock um, at every point. Yeah. So yeah. that did have uh, an impact. And I don't suppose it was one that we were necessarily anticipating. Well, it wasn't the biggest problem for us to talk about during the pandemic, was it? Mm, no. um, and then, um, but we, we've always been, um, there's always an opportunity for, better deliveries, yeah. uh, for, particularly from a consumer per, um, yeah. perspective. But um, I, it seems to have, it's, it, it has alleviated itself somewhat. Um, but it's the, now it's not an, an issue and a fall, a, a call out or a, um, from the pandemic itself. It's the demand and supply that fuels, that fuels the challenges. Yeah. So yeah. I don't think we, it, in terms of production, it's not about that issue so much anymore, but we still have demand on so many products and so many brands and so many launches, um, and the brands just can't keep up. Yeah, no, I think setting aside the, what, what we learned to call the grail watches, again, that was a moment just before lockdown when I think people were identifying certain models and they were being elevated. They were iconic models. I mean, let's, let's not beat around the bush, but this term grail became very uh, 
popular. And as soon as something becomes a holy grail in this instance, then it drives even more demand and drives a sort of an unnatural demand amongst people who would not otherwise be interested in those pieces. Um, and I think as a result of that, ships on a rising tide or what, but you know, it, as, as certain models became unobtainable, either due to their very limited uh, supply or the fact that the production itself was um, threatened, uh, it allowed time and space for other brands to be to be discussed, for their pieces to be viewed. And I think in the best possible sense, it's broadened the conversation around watches this year. I think, I think there are brands who have benefited from much more share of voice uh, as a result of having pieces that perhaps wouldn't have uh, had the cut through had other watches been made more available to get, a, to get heard. And I think that can only be positive. Absolutely. You've referenced this before, and I think it's very relevant, that time that people had on their hands, quite I suppose an interesting choice of words based on what we do. But um, you have referenced it in that the time, the, it was the research element and the considered purchases where potentially some of the big brands were um, fueling and driving the demand. Um, if people had an interest in horology, they were able to spend a little bit more time doing sort of their own research. And there is also, and there is so much content out there um, which enabled them to educate themselves and make a better informed decision on the purchase that they want, mm. um, not necessarily because it's a watch that everybody's wearing or a brand that everybody's wearing or something that's perceived as um, a long-term investment. They're, 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 these products are emotive. Mm. Um, and I think you're right in that there was, it gave the share of voice and I think that's important. That actually, I want to ask you about your, your opinion on how social media has had an effect on our industry, particularly with the micro brands, because they wouldn't particularly have, they wouldn't necessarily have that opportunity to have that share of voice, have that visibility. That social media really lends itself very well to giving the exposure. And in, even down to the aesthetics of showing a watch on social media, it, it works really well. And you don't need to have um, sort of hours of video content and things like that to, to display it. But to touch on that later, because I think it's really relevant and it's something that we're moving, our industry is moving more into. Um, but I would like to go back just very briefly in terms of how the industry is coping with the pandemic, moving on a little bit from that. And through the cost of living crisis, I think it would be remiss of us not to address it. We do work in an industry where our products are luxury. They are absolutely not a necessity. So as people are talking about heat or eat, for example, um, and um, sort of the cost of living is going up in sort of, I won't reference a percentage because it, it changes, but everyone is, everybody's feeling it, it doesn't matter what your background is. Um, how do you think the industry is responding to or coping with it? Wow, that's a, that's a big question. And if I'm, without sounding as if I'm dodging the question, I would say it's a little early to say because I think with the geopolitical events that took place in the spring, a lot of the planning for the uh, industry had already taken place by then. So obviously overnight one market shut down and we've all heard anecdotal stories of, of, of how that um, happened and what that's involved. It's an interesting moment because certain engine rooms of the, of the world economy, which had served the watch industry extremely well, are all... Are, slowing down one has ground to a complete standstill russia and china itself is having a cost of living crisis or at least it's not having the double digit growth that it knew and and, uh, and appreciated um, 10 15 years ago and that is forcing brands to reconsider and rethink 
and not for the first time. I mean, particularly in the case of the Swiss watch industry, uh, this is a moment not dissimilar to the beginning of the uh, 20th century. And prior to that, the older brands had dealt with other slightly more internecine events that had taken place closer to home. But fundamentally, the brands have, have had to look at how they're marketing their watches. To, to, to your first point, the cost of living crisis, with the greatest respect, as you say, a watch purchase is, is a deferrable item on the housekeeping shopping list. So there are many, many people for whom this conversation wouldn't even apply because they wouldn't be in the market for a watch right now. For those that are, the key question is, and it comes back to what I consider to be one of the more detrimental aspects of what you were touching on earlier, Faye, about the social media, is that people have recognised that watches can be an investment. And I would argue, yes, they certainly can. And I think the prognosis for that is good. Um, hopefully we've lost some of the, uh, the flippers, as they're known. People have been treating them entirely as speculative objects. Uh, but the overall investment level argument stands. But against that, there's something even more important, which is it's, it's fundamentally by its design and very nature. A mechanical wristwatch is a lifetime product. So you could argue it's something you could necessarily defer if you should wish, or you could suggest if this is the moment when you feel you could come to do so, you can buy a watch with some security that you're buying into a lifetime product. And I think all of this matches up when you talk about some of the geopolitical issues and the way brands want to present their own work and their own um, products. And to get down to the nitty gritty of it, you could see that with the quality of the collections that came through. And again, these were designed and they were conceived long before the, the, the immediate geopolitical issues that we're living through now. But take Cartier, for instance, of Watches and Wonders. I mean, it was a spectacular collection. And it, it, it really drew deep, as Cartier has been doing recently, on, on the brand and the history of the brand and these extraordinary shapes that they brought to the watch market, whether it's in the tank or the Santos. And they also brought what was their high watchmaking uh, pieces back in in the case of the Mass Mysterious, which was the uh, incredible um, watch in which the movement itself forms the rotor that drives the movement. It, I mean, it's just off the scale. So the quality and, and the sort of dedication to doing good work, and I was, you'll advise me on this, but I was personally impressed and surprised at the price points on Cartier's uh, products this year. There's an incredible limited, admittedly, but an incredible Santos, which had a, a lacquered Santos, um, which I thought was extremely good value and could be part of that sort of collector class in years to come. So it, it comes back to the fact that I think the brands who, are, who have been performing well this year have understood that there are challenges and there will always be challenges. And particularly those older houses who have dealt with challenges in the past, whether it's war, revolution, um, recession, depression even, um, they, they take... They, they take a longer view than most what we call fast-moving consumer goods businesses. So they, they, they iterate, which is a terrible word, but they plan in a way that, although it can create some short-term supply issues if they haven't accommodated the sudden rise of in, in interest in watches, also allow them to, to play the long game in terms of what they're producing. And having spoken to, to a few uh, industry figures in the, in the last few months, um, you know, business, it's business as usual back at their farm. I mean, they are, they are developing and producing products which we'll not, we won't see for three, four, five years from now. So there is, that's one of the great, I think, one of the great central core qualities of the industry, that it's always looked forward and it's always, in, in the best possible sense, played the long game in terms of making sure that their products match 
a, a longer term view of the world than the short term crises that we find ourselves yeah, in. Yeah, the immediacy. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think the lifetime product element is what's important to our to our end. So it's not a it's not a gauche industry when there's um, when there is a crisis to, to um, that's that we're sort of fully aware of. Mm. And in a way, it becomes I think what our experience has been. We see actually a higher demand because when it's you're then it, there's there's more legitimacy in a product that you are buying when you are spending the money. It doesn't feel so flippant. Mm. It doesn't feel so. Um, it's 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 a real considered purchase. Um, therefore, if the money is being spent, it's being really spent considered like considerably. And I I think that differentiates us as at Watches of Switzerland. In we're very respectful of that of a client. Then there's many opportunities. And also, there are less opportunities for clients. So you might it might be a holiday or a watch, um, as opposed to the holiday and the watch, or the car and the watch. Um, That's a very interesting analysis. Then it was, it was made to me uh, a few years ago. That, and again, it comes back to social media. I was asking about the sort of who is your competitor in, in a particular watch uh, scenario, and the watch CEO said, "My competitor is not a watch brand." It's a Maldivian resort. Yeah. It, it's, it's six yeah, it's nights. A light, yeah, it's because it's, memories is exactly. what people buy into yeah. in, in, a, in a consumer industry when you've already talked about fast pace and sort of fashion um, at the, and the shrinkage at the other end. Um, in a way, the, when times are slightly more challenging, it's perhaps that, that considered purchase. And also that's where our responsibility is, is to make sure that when the client does choose to spend their money with us, um, it's, they get the experience that they absolutely deserve. Mm. It's not just the product that they take home because they also could be going to the Maldives instead or, yeah. or, or buying something um, elsewhere. And I think the brands are that long game that you were talking about. It's their respect of the product and what the clients want as well. We've seen them adjust and adapt. Uh, I remember when Jeje Lecoult wouldn't, and not just them actually, some other brands, you'd never see diamonds on a watch that, uh, that was, wasn't precious metal. Mm. It was just not considered. And we're talking within the last 15 years, but as, yeah. as the industry has changed and, 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 and has, has reflected on what the clients want, not just their own, what they believe in, and mm. therefore if you're a Jaeger client, as an example, or a, um, a, 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 it's they've they've realised that you know price points must change because if they want to keep that engagement, um, that introduction and that loyalty, then there has to be an element of flexibility. But I I, I do think it's a robust industry, um, and the brands are respectful. If you look at the price points, so you reference Cartier, what they bought out this year in the Ronde, they mm. um, they, they they reviewed that, but they continuously work on the entry price point. And all the way up to the, as you referenced, the mysterious and the, all of the, the complications that you can't get hold of because the demand is so high. Yeah, I, th I think in a sense there are two, and you serve both of them, there are two markets. I mean, there's a market for which price isn't the main consideration. It's, 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 it's access to something that marks an individual out, particularly if it's so rare that they know that by even having it, they're put into a separate league. And these people are competing on, on, on sort of... Uh, 
levels that very few of us will ever have to worry about whether our boat's long enough or whether our private jet has the range to go non-stop to Tokyo. <laughs> you know, these are not things that we need to worry about directly. But for those people, it is. So to own a one-of-a-kind watch, which has fed into the what we used to call the boutique brands, but it's really not fair to call them boutique brands anymore because they are supplying very, very few watches to high-end collectors of watches who understand what it means to have one. And at the same time, there is what we would consider to be the, the, the customer for a watch, which is a lifetime companion in the, in the case of a piece that you have dreamt of owning and now own. Or as you touched on, Faye, and actually anecdotally speaking again to my famous friends, um, not famous in the sense they're famous, but these friends that I keep dwelling on, uh, they are, because they spent time in lockdown reading about watches and understanding about brand and about detail and about the content of what's inside the case um, they're very happy to buy watches and it's not going to be their lifetime watch but it's the watch they're going to own now while they wait for a piece that they've ordered or they wait for something else to come onto the market they've heard about and they are building collections I mean they are using this moment to really experiment and that for me is the is the really interesting uh, change in the last few years it's brought in a new group of customers who are not here they're not speculative but they are interested in value and a good purchase. And they will go on holiday, but they also understand that something that legitimately they can keep. This is a really weird one, Faye, and I, this, this, I'm not sure this has got legs as an argument, but a few people have said that they have bought into mechanical watches having never had an interest and having said before, why would I do that? I've got a phone. Um, they've done so because they've been very aware of their families over the last few years. And they've been thinking a lot about their parents and grandparents and the things that were handed down or the things that their grandparents had and valued. And, and at least two people have said to me that they'd not had an interest in watches and then they were thinking about something that their grandparents had done or owned and they thought it was time that they made a similar uh, commitment. And I thought that was really interesting. So that's a direct correlation, I think, with how much time we spent at home thinking about our families and our friends. Mm. And, and it, it, every, it is a human industry at the end of the day. It is a handmade product in, in, in all but the most mass-produced cases. So there is a real ecosystem around, around um, both supply and demand. But in this, in this case, the demand, I think there's so many touch points, as you say. And, and a brand like Cartier, and I don't want to single them out, uh, specifically because they are one of several, but they particularly understand that their products have always, always uh, moved through generations, um, have habitually been chosen based on the fact that they are, they represent something in the marketplace like no other in terms of watch design and the, and the, and the ownership that Cartier has over the origins of the wristwatch even. Um, they are sublime at being able to renew that contract with their market and say this is, you, know, you, you can feel very safe with this. Renewal of contract, I like that. That's to the, going back to the respect element in that a client doesn't necessarily just want, hoping that it's not just one of that brand that they buy into, um, particularly when there's so many options and so many different brands, that it's a, you know, trusting in the client that they will come back for perhaps their gold watch or, um, or buying um, one for a partner or a loved one. So renewal of contract in our industry. No, yeah, we've not explored that before. I like it. Um, so iconic products and releases this year. Wizards, what, where, what stands out for you? What stood out initially was it, there was a, 
the watch industry has relied on, and again, it's a temporal thing, why would you not? But anniversaries have always played a, a big role in, in watches. And um, we saw some, earlier in the year, we saw some anniversaries. We saw the 70th anniversary of the Navitimer from Breitling. I mean, that's a grand old age for a watch to, to remain a key item in any collection. Than have a time and it's loyal to the original. It's extraordinary, it's, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's beautiful. It has, as we know, we call it the slide rule, don't we? But it has the the uh, the analog uh, uh, calculator speed direction calculator on on the uh, on the inner bezel, and um, it. I wondered whether again we were going to go into a year in which anniversaries became the the sort of keynote around all brands, and in, and obviously there was several huge anniversaries this year um i know i know of one very well i finished the book on the 50th anniversary of the royal oak uh odomar piguet's um, iconic first contact worldwide entrant into the um sports luxury market it defined the sports luxury watch which we can talk about separately around other brands but so there had there were big anniversaries this year and they were legitimate moments that were celebrated um soundly and correctly at the same time there seemed to be other storylines that weren't really tied to um uh, anniversaries and they seemed to get as much traction i mean there seemed to be interesting stories around for instance the super ocean which is brightling's uh, sports dive watch um, then we got to Watches and Wonders in, in April and we saw some interesting, I would say, almost off-schedule moments at Tabreur and the Carrera, which launched the extraordinary uh, lab-grown diamond plasma Carrera watch, which, which took pride of place, if you remember, in the middle of the stand. Yeah, they're only making 20. We, we yeah. touched on this, didn't we, mm. when we met earlier in the year? Mm. And we, there was a reference to, I think I asked you where you thought the industry was going to go with lab-grown diamonds. Mm. And then a couple of months ago, Breitling um, launched the Chronomat mm. with any, all of their models on that new collection with lab-grown diamonds. And the direction from them is in, going forward, any diamond on any of their watches will now be a lab-grown diamond. Okay. So it was a, quite a... I think it's had really mixed reviews. Mm. Um, I'm not sure where it sits in the jewelry world and I'm not very close to that element. So we're, as you know, much closer to sort of watches. Interesting that they have gone 100%, got 100% behind this. Yeah. Um, and how that how that's changed because with the 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 tag Hoya that we we looked at their piece unique they're only making twenty yeah. because of the price of it it's so it's it's yeah. so high end and obviously there's the tourbillon the crown itself was a lab grown diamond mm. um, but what we weren't expecting was to see that introduced to a, a commercial price um, with the volume brand so to speak. Yeah. No, I think what was really interesting was that I think it was presented to us as a proof of concept in the first instance. We've done this, what do you think? And as you'd imagine, I think the reaction was split between those who believe diamonds must be dug out of the earth. And there are those who can really see how, why would you not want to use something that, yes, it may be de deemed artificial, but it can be generated to a micron level accuracy, which will allow the setting of watches with spectacular diamonds at a price point that would never be achievable in, 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 in using uh, 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 true pure diamonds. This is, um, it certainly caused some controversy. Um, there has been a big divide. I think the price element is key. We haven't seen yet on the product that has been launched with lab-grown diamonds them to be a, a, a lower price point to reflect that. So that could be that could be an element. Um, aesthetically, 
the pieces I have seen were brilliant. They were sparkly <laughs> without mm. wanting to <laughs> without wanting to be dismissive. They were they were bright. They were clear, and that, that's to, to the point of you, you can build it to a, to a, the, the correct size. There's less wastage it, and and all of those elements. Um, and goes also goes the the thing for brightening was the st- sustainability. Yeah. So this this th- this is their long game. Um, mm. I was lucky enough to meet the head of um, sustainability. We did a podcast earlier this year when they launched the um, the, the chronomat and these pieces, mm. and she talked through their entire end to end. And it wasn't so. This is this is not uh, a game for them. This is they they want the, 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 for them. They recognise the importance of it as part of this industry. So aesthetically, I think it works. I do think there'll be a big divide in terms of whether you want diamonds on your watch versus for a woman an engagement ring, a wedding ring, earrings, a pendant, etc. I do think there's a different element. I don't know why so much, um, but I think you don't buy a watch for the diamonds, but you buy jewellery perhaps because of the... Uh, for, uh, well, if it, yeah, for I, think that's, I think that's a very good distinction. I think what, what it's allowing um, brands to do is to work in the diamond sector, so to speak, uh, in a much more productive and um, presumably profitable way because they, they can order the diamonds they require, they know exactly what they're getting. I mean, I, I can't really speak to the sustainability argument. I've heard there's issues around the amount of water it takes to generate lab-grown diamonds. But I think at the other end of the, uh, should we say, the scale of uh, investment perhaps, but again, talking to sustainability, the other um, watch that Taglier showed was the solar graph, the solar-powered um, watch which was I thought fantastic and a very good price point it reminded me a little of what Tagoya were, were great at in the 80s producing extremely good value watches with great design and in this instance you've got a watch you never have to wind it seems to be spectacularly it seems to be spectacularly able to generate power from very limited um, exposure to sunlight and, and I just maintain for, for, for weeks. Crazy. Weeks and you can pop it in months, a dra- actually, yeah. yeah, apparently you can pop it in a drawer and as long as it's had about 20 hours, it will stay running for months. And, and that was something that would presumably have been unachievable many years ago because obviously the technology would have grown dramatically thanks to the investment into sustainable solar power elsewhere in the world. But it's bringing another dimension to watches and I like that. I thought that was fun. And um, to my earlier point, it didn't feel like a year where everything was just running on rails. It wasn't just a constant um, parade of uh, this anniversary or that anniversary or we have added this colorway to this collection. Or It just seemed to have sort of standout moments. And one of the standout moments really was the fact that certain brands who really only used the fairs traditionally to show new product had followed the line of uh, maybe some younger brands or certainly brands that are more conversant with social media, to do more drops throughout the year. Um, I mean, we can speak its name, Rolex Drop, the Deep Sea Challenger. I mean, it's, it's, uh, uh, they traditionally would only have ever shown at, at uh, Basel World, as was, and, and Watches and Wonders this year in Geneva. And that, that was announced um, just a few weeks ago. So clearly there has been changes in the way um, brands are talking to us about their watches. And there just seems to, seems to be a broad palette of availability around styles, designs, and, and actual utility. Yeah, Grand Seiko are another brand that do uh, frequent, regular launches to keep the dialogue going and the and, and the, the awareness and keep them visible. Brightling, as we referenced, they'll they'll do several throughout the year. Do you think brands are being um, more dynamic um, now in terms of how they approach either their production with these key pieces, so whether the tag that you referenced or um, 
Breitling looking at the, the um, lab-grown diamonds. Um, and if you know, we've just seen the back of, or just seen the uh, GPHG awards, which we'll come on to in a little bit. But most of those pieces that have won awards, or even have been nominated, were interesting, um, thought-provoking, creative. I think I, I so in terms of so you've said that we have they haven't come off the rails the the, the, mm. the, the industry or it has um, there is still that element of. I think it's still dynamic. Yeah, I think it's a really, really good point, Fair. I think towards the, from the mid part, from the midpoint of the last decade, um, Instagram, because let's speak of what we speak, it's basically Instagram. And the reason why Instagram is so important is because a watch dial, a watch itself, it could be shown one-to-one scale on an Instagram post. And there's very few other products that we invest into that can be shown in actual size on our social media platforms. So it's an incredibly powerful tool. Uh, it's Now, you could imagine at some point some brands thought, well, we don't need to rely quite so much on these annual fares and we can market directly through social media. And you could sense they might think they could put their feet up, but actually the reverse has been true, as you say. So do do brands have to reconnect with their audience regularly? Yes, they do. And they can do it through product, they can do it through ambassador programs and sponsorships. But fundamentally, do they? unfortunately, they've come into my world of media where they have to constantly refresh their offer to their audience. And that has driven, the, I think, the incidence of new launches and also it's the incidence in which uh, the speed at which collections can grow, the speed at which um, SKUs are announced shortly after initial watches have launched. It's, it has, I think it clearly has, um, some brands have actually distinguished themselves in this area. I think it's clear that some brands are better at it than others. Some have decided to play, back to that earlier point, the longer game and not get too subservient to the needs of a social media audience who are incredibly, their appetite is boundless. Their, their, their ability to consume this data is extraordinary. They don't really want to have to play in that field too much. Do you think so, that's because they're loyal, as, as, as an industry that is fiercely loyal to its heritage, we talk about... Um, the sort of the year that a, a brand was 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 formed, and there's always that legacy, isn't there? Do you mm. think that that's why some so. of these more these more, particularly the more horological brands, mm. um, don't conform? Yeah, conform to this new age where you are expected to stand up and yeah. deliver. Always, I, I think mean, so. they are, they're yeah. obviously still dynamic because other, they wouldn't be developing in the hundreds of years that they've been that, that they've been manufacturing and producing producing watches. So there is still that constant development. Um, it's just it's just I think that you've hit the nail on the head. The speed of which we're seeing things mm. and things are being launched. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the divide because brands aren't stopping. Um, it just depends on what which direction they're going in and the speed in which they're doing it and who they're trying to engage in or where they're trying to stay loyal. True. I think what we should talk about it now that we're on the subject. I think you asked about the power of social media and what role it plays. I think initially, I think generally it's been largely positive. I think there are detrimental elements and you've touched on one. I think for for legacy houses, they hate that phrase, but for for companies with um, lineages of long uh, turn watch production a little screen doesn't really do justice to what they're doing no. and they don't like to create content for that little screen um, which is a shame because that's how people learn but they fundamentally don't want to share too many of their extraordinary uh, 
competencies around assembling watches on a tiny little screen for a few seconds or maybe a few minutes on stories or reels or TikTok. But I think what's more important is that the, um, is that the brands that have harnessed it have done so, and I, I think slightly now at the expense of those brands that we saw launched a few years ago, who believed that they could literally exist only on social media, and they could put together a, a movement in a case manufactured probably in the Far East, and market it solely through social media, and we know the names, but do we? I mean, I can't remember several of the names now that were sort of flagged to me on Instagram saying this is a great watch. And they, they, the price point was accessible, so the, so the barrier to purchase wasn't that high. And a few people who weren't very interested in watches said, well, these brands, they represent extraordinary value for money because of their uh, lack of bricks and mortar and other uh, high fixed costs. But at the same time, they didn't have a story. I mean, the story was you could choose whether you wanted a blue strap or a, or a green dial whilst placing your order. I don't see those brands um, performing now. What I do see is, is uh, much stronger brands who have... Who have authority in watchmaking using social media and using um, digital platforms to really expand both their own horizons in how they tell their story but also clearly expanding the horizons of those who are con uh, consuming it because they're again back to our first point they're learning so much as they go i mean the level you must find it every day and you'll cut your your sales teams must discover every day that the customer knows so much more than they could possibly have known a few years ago and that makes it an interesting dialogue doesn't it and sometimes it must be fun to say yeah 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 you think you know it all but trust me you don't and let me show you this because you haven't spotted that but I think there has been some clear moments where you can see even the most august brands of Vacheron Constantin I mean the oldest continuously produced watch on the planet um, they they have a historique collection uh, where they go back into the archive and recreate. I think the American came out of that a couple of years ago. They had the 222 this yeah. year. And they did the 222, which of course is a your high yeah. design, mid-70s, back to the point around the Royal Oak celebrations, 50 years. They clearly were tapping into a moment and the Nautilus, I mean, the extraordinary story of the Nautilus over the last few years, um, the replacement of the Nautilus this year. There has been this extraordinary, the 5711 replacement, but the extraordinary interest in that particular category of watch allowed Vacheron to push the button on an extraordinary uh, historical piece, which is their uh, Jörg Heisek 222, which um, symbolizes so much of what that decade stood for. Back to your other point, fairly extremely limited. I mean, hard to get hold of, but it's the brand saying, we can tell this story as well, and we don't need to tell it in a huge collection. We just need to present it and be part of that story. And I think that's really savvy. Yeah. Key launches for you this year? For me, I don't, I don't think it came down to individual watches for me quite so much this year. I think it was, there was clearly some pent up um, demand for collections. I think what Giger were doing um, around the master con control collection, obviously they, the Memovox is now part of their core uh, offer. And as you pointed out, exceedingly successful in steel and a metal that I think apart from its uh, importance to the development of the sports luxury market was still considered to be an entry-level material and now we're seeing steel everywhere and I think for me possibly that was uh, to expand on that point I think the standout watch for me if we can jump ahead slightly was the, um, the Calatrava travel time um, in steel Beautiful dial, excellent execution, very practical um, uh, utility-based 
complications, an annual calendar, GMT, a second time zone. So I think it really came down to the fact that people were really sort of being, they're thinking smart. And I think you can look at several brands that have been working very assiduously to sort of propagate a new uh, collection where they have a very clear idea of who it's targeting. I think the Corona Master Sport from Zenith, uh, again, we, we at one point the waiting lists had pushed that into the neo-grail market almost. Um, so I think what, um, what Zenith have been doing and now with the Defy Skyline, which again has some of the attributes to the 70s watches that it preceded, it, it was launched in 69, I believe, um, or even 67. So I think overall there's been a real consideration for what the market is looking for and what the market will withstand. And I think to your point around cost of living versus lifetime investment opportunities, that's going to be the area in which the brands are going to be playing most fiercely. Mm. And I think you say Giger's work with Reverso is, is, is really important. I think, again, next year we've got several big anniversaries coming. So Carrera at 60 next year, the Royal Oak Offshore at 30. I mean, there's, there's these moments that are going to continue to bring product. but. Um, at the same time, I think the collections themselves are going to become ever more uh, clearly defined in terms of the role they play within the brand identity. I think Omega, I think Omega, you've asked me the question, let's get to the answer. I think for me, what Omega have done this year has been remarkable. And I think they've played a blind <laughs> across Seamaster with uh, Bond. Obviously, at the very beginning of the year, the Speedmaster um, 57 launch, which I thought was a fantastic yeah. piece. And that was slightly, and I don't want to say this in a, in, a, in a deleterious way, but it was slightly knocked out of the water by the collaboration with Swatch because it sort of took one story and put another story together with it. And I don't know how we feel about how that was rolled out and the inevitable waiting lists and the demand. And as we saw on the streets of London, some of the scuffles that took place, it slightly disturbed the equilibrium around a very, very iconic piece. Um, but at the same time, God, it didn't have to get people talking. And I think Omega have really benefited from having a deep pockets when it comes to picking out great watches to represent, and also they 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 did so on on your separate point around continually addressing their market again and again and again. And we come right up to the end of the year when they launched the 60th anniversary Bond Seamaster, and again a watch that we understand is limited only by production, and I'm not quite sure what that feels like or what that means when you're taking what it feels orders. like is it's painful from from our perspective <laughs> what it looks like is they are available but very in very 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 small quantities in, in, in uh, initially but I wonder if what you've what you've recognized is the success um, in terms of I've sort of asked for the call outs and mm. most of the brands you've referenced in terms of what you you consider to be what have been highlights for yourself um, Amiga 57 Carrera, it's the anniversary next year, and the Zenith Chronomaster Sport. They all have legacy and mm. heritage, and they're all reaching back to their archives, whether it's the Vacheron 222 in just its one iteration, or whether it's entire collections that are being reviewed and um, developed and upgraded, or there's, yes, they use the expression again, it's evolution, not revolution. Yeah. But it does seem to be the success of the brands. What was new for Amiga for me that is a standout but we still haven't had much delivery of and I, um, forgive me if I can't remember if it was just before 
if it was the end of 2021 or actually in this year was the ultra deep um, yeah. that was a great watch yeah. really looking forward to seeing that yeah. that land so it will be um it, it's that's a really interesting what i remember going to the launch of that watch and of course it was a one-of-a-kind piece developed to um, voyage to the deepest part of the oceans um and it was presented at the time as something again to use that term i used earlier proof of concept it was presented as, as simply an opportunity to develop a watch to find out whether it would be capable of withstanding those depths and there was no hint at the time although i'm sure seasoned observers uh, were incredulous when um, they were told that it would only exist in this particular iteration but here we are now a watch that uh, was extraordinary in and of itself has now come into the collection and i think that's again it comes back to that point Faye, that you made alongside the speed of iteration the rate at which new models can now be delivered produced and delivered which i think is a function of increased technology increased efficiency increased determination frankly alongside that you're getting pieces that would once upon a time have been one of a kind or had ne would never have entered the retail market now coming to market so there's extraordinary exploration of ideas and exploration of uh, potential within watchmaking and you see this across the board. I think most brands now, the, the challenge is now is to keep their story alive in a very, very, very busy, loud, cacophonous world in which we are being pulled hither and thither to think about this and look at that and consider doing this and maybe going there. And now the brands are saying over here and they're doing it in a really interesting way. And um, that's... I, w I wouldn't want to sort of mitigate against the importance of watchmaking, but it's almost the storytelling is now on a level with the quality of the watchmaking. And I do, I do believe that's going to become increasingly important. As you say, those brands that have stories to tell and know how to tell them well will continue to gain ground. Those, stories that have no sto those brands that have no story will have to get one. And those that have a great story that they can't tell will, lo will, will lose opportunities that makes me sad in a way though but it's about the marketing element not the product um you know then, then it becomes which 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 is better the story or the or, mm. or the watch well thank you Faye, because you've, <laughs> you've just completely defined for me what really is the moment we're in right now which is where knowledge and therefore kind of ownership of watches belong to those who really understood watchmaking and understood the power of what watches can do and have done on the other side of the equation, there are people who are much more impressed if that watch has been worn by James Bond than the fact it can time to one-eighth of a second. So though both, I think both are completely legitimate. If you like that watch because your hero wears that watch, or someone you've seen on TV wears that watch, and you want to wear a watch like that, I think that's completely fine. On the other hand, if you look at that watch and go, yeah, but it's not that there's a better watch, mm. and it's made by someone else who did it before that, then they, you're talking to a different part of the market, and they and that, that they will never meet. I genuinely, they never, they'll never meet because whenever they do meet, they're, they're talking different languages. Yeah. And I, and again, my famous friends, I go back to individuals who who do know, we we all know them, Faye, but people who will trot out reference numbers like it's, there's no tomorrow, mm. and will tell you when they changed the oil, you know, when they changed the blend of oil that was used in the in the movements. They know all of this stuff, and then over here, there's people saying, no, I like it because of this person or of this shot I saw and it could be a her heritage piece I mean there's a picture doing the rounds at the moment which is of a um, Redford wearing a watch in the 70s apparently the only watch he's ever owned and that's you can see that's already starting to move the market towards that model but you know we're seeing this and into the middle of it and I think we should talk a little bit about the independent brands because Watch of Switzerland has done so much recently to bring um, independent brands into um, into the 
business that that's creating another level or at least another part of the business where people want something that is not hundreds of years old but is, is limited by production but represents something very new and that's what we saw being celebrated at the Grand Prix de Horologie in Genève. Yeah I can never say that so I may refer to it as GPHG if Please you don't do. mind yeah. but um, I just re- gonna re- I'd like to talk about that I just want to touch mm. on something that you've referenced in terms of the speed of which products are coming out however we also recognize because of the industry we work in um, collections models are worked on years in advance so whilst they're forward-thinking that uh, when we did um, hit the pandemic um, and we were talking about sort of, we saw a lot of colour and it was lovely to see that fun and that freshness I think it was largely coincidental because nobody went well we're going to have a pandemic in five years let's let, let's exactly. cheer them let's cheer yeah, the let's cheer watch, colour, yeah. watch collector up with some brightly coloured dolls mm. um, I understand the speed element because we do a lot of collaborations with brands um, and we have to sort of pick our time and when to launch them and um, you know, we've just launched the Tag Carrera. We've got an Oris, um, an Aquis with Oris. Um, we've just seen the end of the um, Brightling Endurance and Zenith we, we've launched, which has been very successful as well. Um, but obviously these have been in the making for quite some time and we don't want to launch too many products at the same time. We want them all to have their respectful um, air time in their own, and their own voice because they are, you know, we don't want it just to be another Watches of Switzerland limited edition or exclusive. But they do take they do take that time, and I, I imagine what it's like for the we start those conversations eighteen months in advance. So what these watch houses do, and then for the media element to pick it up, so from end to end, it's a, I see it quite as a slow production in terms of um, research and design, concept development, production, and then when it hits the market, it's so so quick. It's mm. so quick. It's quite an interesting. Um, sort of timeline I, I, yeah. I, I would say but from a consumer perspective we see it the we only see it when it lands or <laughs> we hear about it when it lands mm. and we don't see it then for another another period I, of time. I think that's a really interesting point Faye because from, from the outside looking in it's fascinating and, and I, I agree it, it's not about it shouldn't be at all about marketing but when you see a collaboration with with Watch of Switzerland and a brand I'm really interested in what what in a sense it's a wonderful thing to offer your clients, but also you are building a relationship with individual brands each time you do it. But you're also creating what it will become a collection of watches in Switzerland editions. And I wondered how do you how do you work through not repeating yourself in terms of model functionality or or price point or what is the consideration that you feel that a watch of Switzerland um, exclusive needs to have from your perspective? Something that's slightly different to other models however it's got to be something that we already know works as part of the collections and brands aren't going to create something for us specifically so we already have to work with our partners on um, commercial pieces um, pieces that are um, you know you're not we're not going to get a new case shape or a new case size so the iterations tend to be something that we try and work with colorways that either work for them or for us um, we understand product quite well. We are a heavily KPI-driven business, which doesn't make it sound sort of too sexy, I suppose, or too appealing. But in in a, it, it, you know, it's a technical product we work with. So we just have a, a lot of understanding of what clients either purchase or what they're asking for, because sometimes they can't. It's they don't always go hand in hand. So the collaborations tend to be us working with our partners, what currently works. Um, 
and what what we can develop with them we'll we'll propose um the it, and it, it comes from it guys it's internally the brands don't come to us and say would you do this with us we'll do a proposal and it's largely mark tolson um mm-hmm. and a couple of uh, people on, on on his team and the watch department that will um, draw up several iterations or several options, present them to the brands, and they'll they'll be back and forth. But it's, you're drawing um, down on, on on first party information what your clients are asking for or looking for, and I've seen the, I've seen those data sheets. I mean, they're impenetrable to the uh, non-native watch of Switzerland uh, employee. Uh, it's kind of crazy that you know really where the trends are going next based on what people are inquiring after or thinking about or what they might be turning down and picking up. And you are able to feed that back to the brands themselves, and then you're up against whether or not they've got the courage of their convictions to say, right, these people know what they're telling us, so let's let's see if it works. Yeah, and we've actually we've had some great conversations with with some of our partners, and they've asked us like, what, um, as an example, um, what what is a good laser size watch? Because mm. we don't always we we. You don't have to talk in genders because if you like the watch, wear it. It doesn't really matter what case size it is. Yeah. Obviously, some are much more feminine and therefore lends itself to a lady's wrist. And but what what we can do is categorise based on case size mm. or what we think it is. But what we don't know is how many women are buying much larger case sizes, etc. So and that's not that's not really for us to for us to define. But in terms of feeding information back, we, there was a, a brand that adjusted and consolidated a large collection of theirs over the last couple of years um, into one case size and it hasn't worked for them um, particularly for one market because we've got the fortunate element that we can we can look at information on both sides so I'm mm-hmm. slightly closer to the US at the moment um, and trends in America are um, def- much much larger case sizes for ladies and gents so what comes out of Switzerland doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be right for every single market so whether the brands take on information from us or not, and it's 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 certainly not a fact-finding mission. No, it's no one sets out to do it. Mm. But if they ask for the information, we absolutely will support them with the yeah. the data that we have. That doesn't mean it's right or wrong. No. Um, but the relationship we have with, we have with the brands, you know. Um, so some of the, like they they we have ongoing or not repeat exclusives, um, but there are. We, we, we try and continue them every every mm. couple of years. And we've got a really, really important year coming up next year. So yeah. with our um, centenary for Watches of Switzerland mm. um, and what is in, what's what's happening behind the scenes at the moment is really exciting. So that will be hopefully for us to discuss uh, next year. Um, but um, as part of the 2022 roundup, that's, it's, that's, that's the sort of looking looking forward but we're we're lucky we've we've done some great i say we uh, the brands and um mark and the development team they've done some some incredible um, well you've just touched on a big moment next year for you which is a congratulations a centenary in in retail is a is a, is a major achievement that uh, ranks as highly as anything that's achieved by the brands that you support and and, and sell but um that suggests to me that there'll only be more extraordinary um, collaborations coming down the pipe I think so that what yeah I know so and there'll be a lot of big moments mm. um, I it's it's the year that's we're, we're anniversary not a date so, yes yeah um, um, it'll be it'll be an exciting time to Thank be with heavens, the we need year-long parties now one, one, <laughs> day, one day no longer no no longer does it but there was the one party at, at the end of this year which was the uh, Grand Prix de Holder G yes 
uh, horology, which um, I know Brian and I served together as jurors last year, and Brian served once more this year. Um, it was a, it's an interesting event because several of the top five dial names, you can work out which ones they might or might not be, don't participate. Uh, it's a, it's, it's an, in, it's voted for by a jury who are working from a long list that is supplied by an academy, of which I am still a member. They are then asked to fill in their choice in, in reverse order. Uh, and then those numbers are calculated into a prize-winning watch. Uh, the journey from your notation of which watch you want to have get the most points and the one that gets the least is not shared with anyone. And for, for sanity's sake, I suppose, for the brands and for the jurors, uh, there's no discussion between this judging moment and the presentation on the night. Uh, and it's about three or four days that lie between the two. So no one knows, apart from the adjudicator who's counting out the uh, votes, knows what's in the envelope until they step on the stage. And that makes for a pretty febrile audience because they're all there. <laughs> this, the international watch business is in Geneva for one night. And although they might meet a lot when they're passing through uh, business lounges of the world's airports, they don't get to sit together that often. So that brings its own energy, which is enjoyable to watch. And then it's a bit like the school prize giving, I guess, where you just hope that you've done something that's been noticed by somebody else. A school and you, prize and giving. And you get called to the stage. And, uh, and um, well, I... I I, I wouldn't guess what Brian um, felt of the, uh, the, the how the, how the uh, watches were awarded this year, but it does seem to be something that is as a moment in the diary, because there's all uh, I should explain there are also two seasons of watch auctions in Geneva, and the, and the, um, the winter season auctions take place alongside this event. So it's a very very busy, important time for the watch market, not just in Geneva, but for the global watch market who visit over those three or three or four days. So it was. Um, Again, it, I thought, rather to my earlier point about who was getting cut through, uh, there is a lot of brands that may not be familiar to um, a lot of our listeners, so we don't need to go into too many of them. But it, it is a platform by which watchmaking is ratified rather than simply, as you would say, watch marketing being ratified. I think that's the key, the key distinction, isn't it, actually? I, I'm, I was going to ask you, as you started with, there are some brands and watch houses that aren't there by choice it's, it's a pay to play isn't it uh, uh, um, uh, to an extent Does which they could well afford to pay so I don't think that's the clause no no I'm, I'm, no, I'm, no, yeah. I'm, I'm sure it's not their, why they're, no. they're notable absence yeah. so to speak um, so does that I wonder if it takes anything away from the brands that are there because if you happen to be one of the if uh, uh, a very important watch house in our industry and in the Swiss and the Swiss manufacturing process. Does that take anything away from the the, the brands that are there and nominated? And I, don't, I, I, I don't think it does actually. I think I think nominally it's seen as a competition rather than an award. So that suggests that every watch that goes in is in competition with another watch. And I think for for at least two of the brands that you reference their notion of watchmaking is our watches are unparalleled. So if you make a watch that is unparalleled, it can't be seen judgmentally not to be as good as another watch because it's an unparalleled watch. So they're not, I would suggest, I haven't spoken to either party about this, but I would suggest it's not so much the idea that they're, they could be seen to be second best if they don't win in the categories that they would in, be entered into. It's more about the fact that our watches are unparalleled in the sense they don't really stand up to a, a, a 
a conversation such as that. So they remove themselves from the field of play. But to your main point, yeah, it's a bit like the Olympics when the Americans don't turn up. You know, you're losing a huge, <laughs> huge amount of uh, expertise and you just want to see it. I mean, yeah. you just want to see those performances. I think what it does do, the positive side of it, is, as I said, it allows a lot of brands that would otherwise never get any cut through. goes to, back to, to what to, we were talking yeah. about earlier in that with with what happened um sort of during during the pandemic yeah mm. that's really valid um so and it's also quite it's a very new competition so to speak mm. you know it's like yeah. 20 years old 22 yeah. years old if that yeah. we haven't got the opportunity to talk about every single winner um or, or a nomination just wondered if you had any call out or standouts um from the november event I've, i'll go with mine first i've only got i've not only got two there there's lots to talk about um i liked the audacity prize um for bulgari they um it's the second year that they're included um the i just like the fact there's a, a category called audacity in our industry um, but it's an incredible it was an incredible timepiece and the icon um winning was the tag monaco uh golf so I just Fair, you're not going to believe a word of this, but you've actually beaten me straight to it. But I was going to say exactly the same thing. I think, I think what Bulgari have achieved in ten years flat uh, with the Octo Finissimo um, is extraordinary, audacious to set out to become the the, the reference for ultra thin watchmaking is is a daring, bold move, uh, to say the least. Um, and yet, within ten years, they've won eight uh, prizes. And they've also very briefly produced the world's thinnest um, watch in the case of the uh, Bulgari Optifinissima Ultra, which was celebrated on the Audacity Prize. Um, soon lost that title to an extraordinary Richard Meal product that was launched several months later. But that, nevertheless, it remains an extraordinary achievement. And I think with regard to the Monaco, it's a crowded field. And as I said earlier, there are, there are several iconic watches that have been um, celebrated this year will be celebrated next year. But you mustn't lose sight of the watches that really did, and I will use that pun, turn the dial on on how watches were understood, how they were embraced, and how they've become lifestyle accessories. And I think you really have to look at the Monaco, the, the world's first waterproof square watch. I mean, square watches weren't new, but a waterproof square watch was unheard of. And then for it to develop this extraordinary patina based around its relationship with motorsport, um, is, is kind of incredible and it's good and I've played this record a few times but it shows that as much as we celebrate watchmaking and the extraordinary complexity of micro-engineering which is what mechanical watchmaking represents there's also the design element and you know we, we as, as a group of humanoids marching around this planet right now we've become very, very, very design literate we really understand what works and what doesn't work. Look at our cars, look at our home interiors, look at, look at the objects that we choose to use from our phones to our, um, to our, from our phones to, to everything. Everything has to have an exemplary design. We won't touch them otherwise. And the watch world, whilst in the past it may well have considered that to be aesthetics and something that was a consideration only after you devised the watch and built the movement. Oh yes, we need to put it in a container and it should probably look quite nice if possible. Those days don't um, exist anymore. And now watches and the best watches are coming to market. And I think we saw the GPHG, we, we saw, um, I mean, there's a number of bands we could reference, whether it's um, Hermes, which isn't stocked, but I mean, there's a number of bands that we could rec recognize have come out of the design 
history, and that would be Cartier being a prime example. But fundamentally, what all of the watches are doing is bringing an element of design into the product as well. They have to look exciting. And to be fair, there are several uh, brands that could have won in the Audacity Prize just for their radical design. Yeah. And again, I think there was a time in the past when radical design didn't get you over the line, but now it has to be part of great watchmaking. Well, I think that's the thing, it's teamed together with the great watchmaking, but it's interesting, as you said, that we both choose the same watches and they're the only two square watches that won um, And in an industry where watches are traditionally or primarily uh, around. Not that, I mean, it's just a very basic observation, but it was, that was interesting this year. So... We could talk about that, we could have an entire conversation based on that, and I think um, nod to um, MBNF and Max and all of his, he, he did incredibly well this year, I think mm. ninth award. Um, but um, yeah, there was, there, there was a lot to, be, lot, to, lot to speak about. And some of these brands we, you know, we, we, we do stock here at Watches of Switzerland, um, and as you said, Brian was on the, um, as part of the, um, on, on the board there. Um, I suppose it just speaks largely to, to what we do as a company as well, you know, on all sides of the market with Battersea just opening up. And um, we had some boutiques there and Watches of Switzerland. Uh, Europe started for us this year. We kicked off, we've just opened our fifth mono brand boutique in in um, in Europe and that's develop, developing next year. And more in the States with our most recent collaboration with a pop-up with De Beers, which we've never done before. So as the industries develop, watches of Switzerland certainly are as well. Um, we don't seem to be slowing down at all. Um, and I, I just think it's testimony to the, just to what the watch brands are doing, what um, our clients are looking for, um, and, and, and you know what our retailers are doing as well, us as mm. retailers and, and, and wider retailers. So if you could sum up the year in very briefly in two sentences, how would you do that, Bill? One word, intense. I think, as I said at the top of this, I think because it was foreshortened, unfortunately, by the hangover from uh, the pandemic, a lot got crowded into 10 months. Um, so we saw a lot of product, a lot of product launches. I think it's a hard year. I wouldn't want to pull a hat out. I wouldn't want to pull a rabbit out of the hat now and say the trend of this year has been this or been that. Um, I don't think it's been that kind of year, funny enough. I think it's been a year of consolidation or almost reformation. Everyone's been getting their shape and size back. We've seen some extraordinary moments. We've seen this elevation of the grail watch, as it's now referred to, as becoming something that's being discussed literally on the international news. Um, we are also seeing the drive, therefore, in uh, pursuing uh, certified pre-owned, other, uh, other elements in the marketplace that um, you also embrace has become even more fruitful and important for people when they're considering buying a high value item such as a watch, knowing that they can return it to you and perhaps buy something else. There's been all of these little uh, sort of tributaries all leading into the fact that I think everything is now primed, hopefully, to move on next year. And I'm glad you mentioned Battersea Power Station. I'm lucky enough to live opposite Battersea Power Station, so I've seen this extraordinary edifice change from a misbegotten ex-coal-fired power station into this extraordinary global hub, I guess, for brands, for visitors to London. And I don't want to sound too local, but I also used to work opposite a building site, uh, which is now the Elizabeth Line. And I think, well, instrumentally, those two developments show that there is a great pent-up expression of a new retail landscape, a new opportunity, 
um, the world moves on and it's important to remember sometimes when you feel it's not and you're walking through mud it is actually moving on but you can't see it until it's finished and in that case the Battersea Power Station now the Elizabeth Line just in London alone is evidence that we are moving forward and that's got to be a positive and I think that's what we should take into the new year a very important year for Watch of Switzerland Group clearly but also an important year for the watch industry uh, I think touch wood we'll all be back in watches and wonders at the end of march there'll be another uh, wholesale number of launches next year we'll, we'll be getting back into the rhythm of how we used to uh, find product and discover product and talk about products so i think really it was a bit, it was a big hope it was a big ask for 2022 to go right from the beginning it didn't 2023 fingers crossed things are looking up let's go let's go gosh okay so in I'm not sure it can be summarised too easily, but uh, intense for sure. Carcophonous was a word you used earlier, and I think that um, is very relevant. Um, and new retail landscapes, uh, that's really important too. Forward-looking and the symbolism of some of the new openings this year, particularly in the UK or in London. I can't wait to see what happens in 2023. Bill, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you again and reviewing the year. Um, it's only been five minutes since we were... We, we, we started but I um, can't wait to be included and hopefully do this again with you next year have a wonderful Christmas and happy new year thank you Faye that's very kind I look forward to seeing you in the new year thank you for listening to the Calibre podcast we do hope you enjoyed it please do subscribe and listen to other episodes on Apple podcast and Spotify